When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Queerly Beloved listeners. There's a podcast I want to tell you about. It's called The Shadows. The Shadows is a new fictional series that critics describe as charming, funny, and uncannily believable. Ever want to be a fly on the wall in another relationship? This is your chance. Listen as two people fall in love, as they fight, make up, and break down all over again. The Shadows comes from award-winning audio artist Caitlin Prest, creator of the acclaimed series The Heart. The entire six-episode series is out now at cbc.ca slash the shadows or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Queerly Beloved, a podcast from Broadly about the families we choose. I'm Sarah Burke. And I'm Fran Torado. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Fran. How's it going? Pretty good. So this week's episode, it's it's a lot. Um, yeah. <laughs> talk to me about Zulfi. Okay, so the episode is about Zulfi. And I, I first became aware of Zulfi a few years ago when I was living in the Bay Area. He's a pretty popular multimedia artist there. Right. But he has this whole complicated backstory, right? Yeah. So Zulfi has this incredible dense, fascinating, heartbreaking familial history. And it's it's a lot to take in, so definitely pay attention. So Zulfi is named after his grandfather, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, who was the founder of the PPP, which is the Pakistan People's Party, a influential left socialist political party. And Zulfikar Ali Bhutto was also prime minister of Pakistan in the 1970s. And he was eventually executed. And then Zulfi's father, uncle, and one of his aunts all went into politics after him. And they were all eventually killed in suspected assassinations. So Zulfi's father was killed when he was really young. Oh, wow. So what we're getting at here is that whether he liked it or not, Zulfi was born into politics. I mean, his immediate family didn't push him to go into politics. But realistically, you know, the rest of the country were kind of watching Zulfi and his sister, who's a journalist named Fatima, as they grew up and expecting them to be the successors to their family's political dynasty. Instead, though, Zulfi went to boarding school in Edinburgh, Scotland, and then eventually moved to San Francisco to attend the San Francisco Art Institute and pursue being an artist. That's a culture shock. That makes his move all the more of a big deal. Yeah, I mean, he really, you know, took his own path and devoted his life to being an artist. But on top of his fine art practice, he also has this incredible drag persona named Faluda Islam. 
And she's just amazing because she kind of functions as this vessel for Zulfi to synthesize all of his feelings around his family's history, around ideas of revolution, around assassination, but also around queerness and Islamophobia that he's felt living in the United States. Wow, she sounds both amazing and also deeply complex. Yeah, I mean, she's a really kind of conceptual and super interesting drag persona. But what makes it even more complicated, though, is that for a long time, a lot of people in the United States didn't recognize Zulfi for his background. You know, they didn't understand that he was part of a political dynasty. And then people in Pakistan didn't know that Zulfi was doing drag until really recently. And so I think that was kind of just a lot, you know, for him to navigate emotionally. Okay, so last thing. This podcast, it's about chosen family. So where does the family element come into all of this? Yeah, so one of the people who helped Zulfi kind of navigate all of this stuff and was dealing with similar stuff at the time was this woman named Anna Montenegro. Zulfi met Anna in art school, and she's a queer Colombian woman who immigrated to the United States at the same time that Zulfi did. So she kind of just understood a lot of the alienation that he was feeling, and the two struck up this really sweet, incredible friendship, and were kind of just able to support each other in this really beautiful way. In my life, I've always imagined revolution or rebellion or political action as very heterosexual. For me to use my drag persona or my drag character as a way of imagining revolution or political thought or radical thought through a high femme lens I think, for me, is very important. My drag persona, her name is Faluda Islam. Faluda is the name of a dessert. It's very tasty, you should try it next time you go to an Indian restaurant. And she is a zombie. Uh, she is, in fact, not alive. Um, she was resurrected through Wi-Fi technology. Um, and the way she died was in the future queer revolution. Uh, she was killed. She's sort of an oracle. She is able to manifest the future. She's able to tell the future. She's able to give an insight into past, present, and future. And that's kind of what she performs now. Faluda's life and how she dies is, is a lot how my father died and is, a, and is actually a, somewhat a retelling of his life. And along with that, I talk about injustice, you know, who gets the right to live or die? Who is the decider of that? War comes up. Aspects of martyrdom come up. Islamophobia comes up. Let's start with some background. Tell me about your family. I come from a political dynasty. My father was Mir Murtaza Porto, and his father was Prime Minister of Pakistan. I was named after my grandfather, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, in the 1970s. He was uh, executed by the military regime 
a military regime that took over and uh, ousted him from power. My father's side of the family really influenced how people saw me, especially in Pakistan. My legacy didn't belong to me. My family didn't belong to me. My future didn't belong to me. It was very much already preordained. So a lot of people that were close to us, very well-meaning people, very much believed that I had to follow on that track, as my father had done, as my aunt had done, as my uncle had tried to do. Um, and all of these people died and were killed. Coming into my queerness while being in Pakistan was navigating a, a very conservative world that, that had a very different idea of, of what it meant to be queer or even gay, and also trying to live as happily as I could within my own home and with my own family. So I was honest and open in my own home, but I played straight in, in Pakistan, you know, up until I left. And that included having one or two or three girlfriends. That included even trying to convince myself that I was, you know, that things could change. My family wasn't religious. My mother's, you know, she is, she is a Muslim, but religion didn't play a role in an acceptance or a rejection of that identity. And also it wasn't that my mother's a conservative person either. The society around us was. So there was two different ways of being that I had to, to navigate in terms of talking about my queerness. When I was 18 years old, I still had some of my high school to finish. And I was going to continue that in Pakistan, but the political situation had shifted, and many of the people who were very much involved in my father's murder were now occupying very high ranks of government. And it didn't feel safe for my family to keep me there. It was kind of an emergency. It was very odd. Like, I was, I was sort of dropped into the middle of a semester in a country that I had only known very distantly. And it was my first glimpse into, essentially, whiteness. And suddenly realizing that, oh, wow, like, they really do see brown people as different. They see me as different. They see me as interesting or exotic or, or, or also they have their own prejudices when they see me or they think of who I am. And then when you were in your early 20s, you moved to San Francisco. Why the Bay Area? And what were you expecting there? I did always have a fascination with San Francisco from, I think from when I was like... Uh, an early teen, 13, maybe, 14, and I, and I had discovered about it because in, in our house, I found a, a Times magazine from, I think, the 90s, and it was talking about the people who had shaped the 20th century, and I picked it up, and this sounds so cheesy and cliche, but there was an article about Harvey Milk. And there's an article about the gay rights movement. And I remember I was 13 years old living in Pakistan. Not to say that we didn't have anything like that, but kind of, yeah, we didn't. And it was definitely very inspiring to see someone be sort of openly who they were in political office. Knowing I was a queer person very early on in life, you know, that just wasn't an option. 
you know, you couldn't do que queer politics or gay politics. I, I mean, I didn't really even have the language for that then. I had the language for politics already very, very uh, well cemented in my psyche, but I didn't have the language for queer politics or, or that kind of emancipatory politics. It just it was just out of the question, you know. And also, I was very inspired by my grandfather's story uh, when he moved to the United States. He moved in the mid 40s and he came to the Bay Area. He went to Berkeley and his first like night, basically, because, you know, he came on a ship, you know, he needed a hotel for that night. He went to a hotel and he said, can I have a room for the night? And the uh, receptionist said, we don't serve colored people. And he was very, very confused because obviously he was a member of the British Empire, but he was a, a, a privileged one, a wealthy one. And so he was very struck by that, that his, even his wealth couldn't afford him convenience in that moment. And he became much more radicalized, much more left wing, which eventually affected how he lived the rest of his life when he went back to Pakistan. So in some way, I, 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 had, a, I had a slight sort of heroic sense to it or sort of a, you're going in like there's a mission here, you know. It sounds like you had a really specific idea in your mind of what the Bay Area symbolized and would be like. When you arrived, was it what you expected? It would definitely felt a little bit like, OK, like this is not this is not the same place you read about or spoke about. Like the, there's not the fighting spirit. There was something that was very, very, very uh, uh, political and targeted here. And there was something that was very angry in the air here. But it had been heavily, heavily subdued into a culture of I was a little prudish at the time, so I was, I was sort of like, you know, what is this culture of sex, drugs, and rock and roll? It was, it was, it was a little bit of a, it kind of was, it, it just felt so frivolous. And specifically, what was the queer culture like that you initially encountered? What in that felt alienating to you? It was very, very white. It was very inward looking in the sense that it didn't really have a perspective on, on the outside world, nor did it feel like it desired to. Um, but I also just couldn't relate to it, and, and nor did they have a desire to try and relate to me or many of the other people that weren't from the United States that were queer, that were my friends and my family at the time when I first came to the United States. I remember a friend of mine had a, had a birthday party and he invited a bunch of us to Oasis, which is a nightclub, gay nightclub here in San Francisco. And I remember going in and seeing these very buff white men with perfect haircuts, like the perfectly cut jean denim shorts. Like everyone seemed to have the same boots. If they were wearing a crop top, it was cropped at exactly the right place. You know, the head was shaved on the side and like there's a little flop on the other side. And it just wasn't really my my look. I realized like, wow, I really, I couldn't cut it. <laughs> and I remember saying to a friend, feeling very depressed, that I just did not look like this cookie cutter image. I wish I was two shades lighter, uh, which I've never said before and will never again say after. But it really synthesized my, my feeling. 
like I, I, I felt so out of place and I felt so unwanted and undesired because I didn't fit that mold. When I first came to the United States, many people in the gay scene thought of Islam as the anti of what they were. They thought of Islam as ultra-conservative, ultra-homophobic, ultra-misogynistic, ultra-anti-femme, etc., etc., etc. They thought it was everything that they weren't. And they thought that it was against everything that they were. And conversely, that ended up them being against everything that Islam was. You know, at least now people are registering that we exist, but they're registering we exist still in a frame of mind that's very binary. That we're queer... Muslims, but we're not really Muslims. Like, we're Muslims by birth and we're queer and we're sort of not really, you know, it doesn't make, it still doesn't make sense to many people that that, that can fully exist as an intersection of identity, but it, it does in many complex ways. You know, I felt a certain sense of alienation and because of that alienation, I sort of redefined my, you know, for myself, what it meant to be queer. Um, and then I met Anna. We met on the first day that I was at the San Francisco Art Institute, where we both did our MFA. I clearly remember the moment where, when we met and it was like the introduction for international students. Yeah, that was really funny. Yeah. <laughs> and I sat down, I think it was right opposite you and everyone else was a little bit awkward, very quiet, very watchful. I felt like I was being looked at, you know. And Anna was, had this very sort of soft look on her face and was like, hello, I'm Anna. And that's kind of how it started. And then sort of as I was leaving, awkwardly, Anna, I remember, reached out through a crowd of people, like literally reached through at least like three or four other people and held held my, my arm and said, Zulfi, it was very nice to meet you. And I don't know, that moment very much stuck with me. Yeah, with me too. It yeah. stuck with me very well too, Yeah, yeah which yeah. is weird. And I think that we're talking as if we were in love, which is funny. <laughs> but there was something very familiar in your, in your, I don't know, in your smile and in your body, like body language. Mm, mm -hmm. I think we were all feeling like outsiders. And he was super nice when he said hi. And, and I don't know, I was just like, there was some sort of chemistry, I would say, immediate chemistry. And I know from speaking to you both that there was a specific moment that really solidified your friendship. And it involved a sign on the side of a San Francisco city bus. What happened? I remember I was coming out of, of school. I was waiting for the bus, uh, which was always like uh, a nightmare, <laughs> depending on the hour. And I just, another bus just stopped, passed by, and I saw the sign. And at first I thought that I was like not reading properly. You know, so I was like, what? So I had to read it like three times and then I was so upset. Do you remember exactly the words? I, I remember. Yeah. So you so Anna, so Anna called me. 
I immediately called you. You immediately called me. I was like so me. upset. Yeah. yeah. And I remember listening and just being very angry, confused. Like, I'm angry, but am I? do I know what I'm angry about? And then I saw it while I'm waiting for, again, in that night, nightmarish process of waiting for the, the Muni Metro on a weekday morning. And I, I saw the ad and it said um, the words Islamophobia with a question mark next to it. And it was big, 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 big letters. And there was a picture on one side with like this, like, you know, like cool brown kid DJ, like looking all like suave and sophisticated and like part of our urban culture kind of person. And then on the other side of the Islamophobia question mark was supposedly the same person wearing a balaclava with a sort of blurred human head in his hand. And underneath the sign that said Islamophobia, it said uh, something along the lines of moderate Muslims can turn into extreme Muslims. So basically, beware. This is like, what the fuck, you know? Yeah, it really was. I mean, especially especially because it was on public transportation. You know, you're you're a Muslim riding a, a bus, a, a train, you know, I mean, me and many others. And you're forced to sit in a vehicle that is advertising your your expulsion, your your criminalization or simply the paranoia that should be around you. And it was a very, very scary experience. That was the first time that I sort of, something made me like, question really where I was. I think that it accelerated that dialogue that we would have eventually had. I mean, it just, it really defined our conversations, where we come from, uh, how people see each other and how people see us and, you know, even the differences between and similarities between us. So it was a really important moment. And then when we started talking about identity as well, we wanted to also complicate that identity. Identities in the United States can be very simplified and they can be very much a matter of being one thing or the other thing and rarely a matter of being one thing and the other thing which is kind of where the queer aspect comes in so in my case the paradox was that being queer and muslim did not relate therefore i shouldn't necessarily feel as offended by these as because they're clearly pointing out something i shouldn't like already these complexities and paradoxes, you can see them very clearly together, which is when people ask me and ask Sulfi, where are you from? That question, I think that what I feel is a bit of anxiety, and I think that that's also what Sulfi can feel in certain environments. Of course, you can ask, it's a very relevant question, that question, it's just that there's, there's like a good way to get into that subject and a bad way of getting into that subject but in general I think that we both felt like this anxiety of like having to explain ourselves in many levels so amidst all these conversations between both of you about the complexities of identity and also the ways that you both are perceived in the United States. Zulfi, you started doing drag. 
How did all of those conversations kind of inform your drag practice and the drag persona that you created? I thought there was a lot more to say and there was a lot more that needed to be said. And I really thought that it was important to say this within the communities that I thought were important to say it to, mostly the queer community in San Francisco, which thought of itself as being outside of prejudice in many ways. And I remember seeing my first drag show after I graduated, two years after I had lived in San Francisco, oddly enough. But at the time, I was really mesmerized. And I thought, wow, you know, if I could do that, but do a piece about Islamophobia doing that, <laughs> what would happen? Racist and Islamophobic ads on buses warning people of the dangers of a Muslim presence in the U.S. and a largely white-dominated gay community that saw my love for Islam as a contradiction. You're either gay or you're a Muslim. I was actually there the first time he used uh, makeup. There was this kitchen where I used to live, where we hang out a lot. And I saw like Sulfi's drag coming to life in that kitchen. Because there we saw like it was the first time he used makeup. And of course, I don't use a lot of makeup, but I know how to use the makeup that I use. So I was like, no, 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 you shouldn't do that, do this. You know, and him wearing heels for the first time is something that I also saw in that kitchen. So to me, his drag persona sort of really was born in that kitchen. Years later, I found myself in San Francisco, gay mecca, a place of acceptance and freedom. So throughout all of this, Anna has been by your side. What role has that relationship played in you coming into yourself as Faluda Islam? Anna's role was huge. I mean, she she was instrumental in in keeping that confidence going. You know, she was like, just be. You know, you're doing you're doing something that makes you happy, and you're doing something that that can really broaden people's senses. And she was very happy to help me explore makeup in as much as she could, but she was also happy to be there to talk about what I was going through emotionally in that moment. Because, you know, as, as much as it, it felt in some way liberating and fun and expressive, it was also brought with it a lot of tension and a, a lot of stress because it was something that I had to kind of do in San Francisco, but somehow keep secret in Pakistan, which ended up not being the case. I mean, now in Pakistan, it's it's very much a fact that I'm a drag queen. Everyone knows about it. There's no secret about it. But at the time, it would just it, it the the feeling of having to like do both was was really really brutal. My father's side of the family kind of took away my own agency in many ways, but my mother's side of things was very different. Um, these expectations weren't there. And Anna, in many ways, also had that perspective. I think the memory, the most vivid memory I had of the first show was Sulfi walking through the crowd and um, sort of flirts with people and people play a little bit. And I really remember, like, making eye contact. And just, we were both, I think, like, static. You know, because it was like a 
to me it felt like the end of a, of a journey. When I talk about my experience in San Francisco, I always talk that about like how the most meaningful thing that happened there was all these incredible friendships um, that that I have now mm, that were only possible because we all went through that journey together, not only of like being in another city doing an MFA, but like really understanding who we were and what we wanted to do and sort of also understanding that there's nothing you can do alone. Queerly Beloved is a production of Vice Media and Broadly. If you're liking the show, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen. And please leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. This podcast was produced by Sophie Cases. Production assistance was by Dan Richards. And our theme music is by Tyler McCulley. But before you go, we want to share one last thing with you. We reached out to our Broadly readers for your stories about chosen family and queer icons. And we got some really amazing responses. If you want to leave us your story about Chosen Family, call our inbox at 707-412-8388 and your voicemail could be featured on Queerly Beloved. Thanks so much for listening. When I first came out, I was raised in a very religious Mormon community. And my parents had the same mindset I did. I can change. I can be straight or, quote, normal and fit into this community and go to the temple, which is, like, the highest thing that we can do in our religion. There were no gay people in my life or my parents' lives that we knew of, obviously. So when I came out after that, we didn't talk about my sexuality for three years. And then when I first started talking about it, I remember... Very specifically, we were down in my basement, and in my religion, we have what's called general conference. So, like, the leaders of our church broadcast basically on TV to the whole entire religion, the Mormon community, words of advice, essentially, twice every year. And they were talking about how gay people don't change, and that's just who they are, and you need to love them. And I remember starting to cry under my blanket, and at this time, I was, I believe, 15. And my mom came up and hugged me and she said, I will love you no matter what you do, no matter who you love, you are my son and I will always love you. And we both just started crying. I had always been taught that being gay was wrong, but slowly I started to realize that it wasn't. This was who I am. And if you told me even two years ago that my mom would be the biggest ally in my life, I wouldn't have believed you. And now she's actually volunteering three, four days a week at LGBTQ plus safe house in Provo, Utah, helping kids that are going through the same thing. And she is my closest friend. She is my big support. She is the most unconditionally loving person on this planet. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online 
you'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.